Friends, today we will continue in our series through the book of the prophet Habakkuk. And our scripture for today is found in Habakkuk 2, verses 6 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. Shall not all these take out their taunts against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not our debtors suddenly arise? And those awake who will make him tremble, then be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, and the remnants of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of men and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gains for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood, and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Much is said today about being on the right side of history. This is a mantra that is often used to advance social, political agendas. What will the history books say about us? About our high level of tolerance or intolerance? What will they say about you and me? How will we be remembered? What will the next generations say about us? Truth be told, I am almost certain that the history books will say nothing about you and I. And personally, that's a good thing. I have a friend that reminded me before I came to Central the words of Nicholas Ludwig, Count of Zizendorf. Preach the gospel, die. And be forgotten. Good reminder, isn't it? He was telling me, ministry is not about you. It is about the message you proclaim. May Central forget you and I one day. But may Central Baptist Church never forget the message of the gospel. And this is a reminder for us today of what the right side of history is. 
Even as we think about it, who knows what the side, right side of history is? Isn't it haughty and prideful to say, I know what the right side of history is? Friends, we know what the right side of history is only because God has told us what the right side of history is. The right side of this history is the side of the gospel. The gospel that is undermined by our society, the gospel that is ostracized by the cultural elites, the gospel that is often rejected by the many who hear it. And yet, from the scripture reading we heard earlier on today, from Revelation 7, those from all nations, tribes, peoples, languages, are only those that have heard the gospel and believed it. These are the ones who are on the right side of history. Because history belongs to God. And the right side of history is on the side of God. Our passage today reminds us that victory is won at the end. That history has a trajectory and only those who fear God note and are walking towards its triumph. In this series, we heard much about the Chaldeans, the wicked people of Babylon, who violently threatened all nations and who, who would plunder the people of God. But God has a response for the wicked. Always. God's justice may seem to delay, but it never fails to arrive. The right side of history is determined by God and by God alone. Today we will see the hope of the oppressed. We will hear the dirge, the song of war, the taunting of the righteous who lives by faith. So here's my guiding thought for today. God will vindicate the cause of the righteous by judging the wicked and making himself known in all the earth. In, in chapter 2 that we're looking at today of Habakkuk, we find the word woe five times. Uh, and each time, God, through His people, indicts the wicked because of their wickedness. Woe is a word of judgment. Woe is a word of surprise. Woe is a word for those who think they are on the right side, but then eventually will be told, you are not on the right side. So then we'll look at the first three woes in this passage. And next week we'll look at the last two. So, so what is God saying to the wicked? What, what is God's warning, surprising warning to the wicked? First of all, in verses 6, and, six through 8, we'll see 
that the greedy will lose his gain. In verse 6, God is really expanding on the righteous that shall live by faith. This, of course, refers primarily or directly to the faithful remnant of Israel. Israel will take out tons, scoffing, and riddles against Babylon. Interestingly enough, these categories abound in the book of Proverbs. Tons, scoffing, and riddles. God is saying here that Israel's relationship with Babylon is proverbial. It, 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 Proverbs is a book of principles. So as we see the people of God reacting to its oppressors, we can say, this is how we stand against those who oppose God. It's a paradigm that explains the right relationship between those who belong to God and those who oppose God. Therefore, this proverbially includes the church. These songs are here to teach us, you and I, believers, how to deal with the ungodly. Now look again at verse 6. God says, Shall not all these take out their tongues? Although God is speaking in these verses, God is quoting the song of faithful Israel. God is quoting the voice of the oppressed. He is not telling us his song, but God is telling us our song. Notice also that nowhere in, in this chapter, God directly refers to the Chaldeans or the Babylonians by name. Instead, he uses pronouns like he, you, yours, to refer to them. In a sense, God is generalizing Babylon as a representative of all those who are wicked. And we ultimately see that right towards the end of the book of Revelation, where Babylon is destroyed. All the enemies of God are destroyed. So, friend, this is encouraging, because just as the righteous in Israel had a song of hope in their hearts, when faced with oppression, we too have a song to sing when Satan tempts us to despair. So, so what is this first song? It's a song of retributive justice. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The punishment matches the crime. The Babylonians are wanderers, meaning they took that which did not belong to them. 
They lent money and required exorbitant ledges. They care more about illicit gains than loving others. And Israel would feel the full force of their wickedness. But God, unlike Adam, is just. He remembers the cause of the oppressed. Psalm 9, verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. In verse 7, the oppressed rise up. This is an assurance God is giving to His people. Though suffering will last for some time, you will be able to defend your cause. Your enemies will tremble before you. God loves an underdog story, doesn't He? I mean, Noah stands against the whole world. Gideon, with a mighty army, keeps losing soldiers over and over until God tells him, go face the Midianites with 300 men. David faces Goliath. Elijah faces the prophets of Baal. Mordecai, in an incredible point, is about to be hanged. But God turns his fortunes. In, in his sovereignty, Haman receives the punishment that he deserved. Over and over, God showed His people that the way to victory is the way of weakness. Why? Because only when we are weak, we're able to recognize He who is strong. God is exalted when we recognize our weakness. The way of the weak is the way of faith, the way of reliance, the way of humility. And this is good news, because though often we try to pretend we are not, we are indeed weak. It takes a weak person to say, I can't do it on my own. I need God. It is when we consider our weaknesses that we are able to release every attempt to make ourselves right before God. It is when we recognize our weaknesses that we come to Christ. Friends, listen to me. Hell will be filled with people who thought of themselves too strong. But heaven is a place for the weak for the meek, for the one who says, I need Jesus. Friends, Christianity offers victory in the shape of a cross. Jesus Christ 
the all-powerful Lord of the universe made himself weak to reconcile the weak, the fallen, the sinful, the selfish, the prideful man, you and me to the Father. So, this is a call for us to also live our lives in weakness and humility. Unlike the Chaldeans, unlike Babylon, unlike Christ, like our Master. Primarily, we live in weakness in our faith. We recognize that were God not to give us faith, we would not have it. Were God not to show us the glory of Christ, we would not see it. Were God not to give us life when we were dead, we would still be dead. But when we recognize our weakness in our faith, God makes us alive together with Christ. Our culture prizes strength. And yet I remember my, my uncle saying one day, it is foolish for a man who has a spine that is so weak to claim to be strong. Our bodies are so frail. We're not so strong. We're too weak. But our culture celebrates strength, demonstrations of power. I think we were all shocked with the events that transpired this week during the Oscars Award ceremony. One man who sought to defend the honor of his wife, who was indeed dishonored in public, sought to do it by his strength. Justice was made with his own hands. And that ultimately demonstrated his weakness. At the apex of his glory, he demonstrated that he is unworthy of glory. Why? Because he did not trust the Lord. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. Friend, friends, it, this is not the weakness that the Bible calls us to embrace. The weakness that the Bible calls us to embrace is the weakness that seeks not to defend one's honor, but instead seeks to honor, honor others. It is the weakness that leaves revenge in the, in the hands of the Lord. It is weakness that promotes humility even before one's enemy. True weakness is displayed not when we are strong, but when we recognize that we're not strong. True weakness is displayed when a husband embraces a constant attitude of gentleness towards his wife, not because she's necessarily earned it, but because he knows her dignity comes from the Lord. 
True weakness is displayed when a wife willingly and joyfully accepts her lot of her husband's leadership, not because he is necessarily a great leader, but because she trusts the Lord with her future. True weakness is displayed when parents humbly come to their children and ask for their forgiveness when they sin against them because they're not afraid to display their dependence on the Lord. Friends, Babylon is characterized by the pride. And, and because of their pride, they will be brought low. That's a warning. Christians cannot be characterized by pride. Because we too will be brought low. The greedy will lose his gain. We live in a world that appeals to greed. We live in a world where we can find many ways to gain. But we can also find many ways to lose. And the worst thing we could lose is our bare soul. But our Lord Jesus Christ reminds us of who will gain the whole world? Who will inherit the whole earth? When he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So friends, is, is your life characterized by meekness? Is your life characterized by humility? But when you interact with other people, do you primarily try to display to them how strong you are or how weak you are? Friends, we can only display the glories of Christ when we embrace weakness. As a Christian virtue, it is as something to be celebrated. And it is in weakness that we are made strong. Now let's consider the second woe. The self-reliance will be opposed. Verses 9 through 11. Self-reliance really, does, really doesn't seem to be too bad at times, right? I mean, the Bible does say, carry your own burdens. You reap what you sow. If you don't work, you don't eat. There's an aspect of working hard and being and finding dignity in the work of our hands that is definitely biblical. God is not speaking against that here, but the want of the Chaldeans here is for self-reliance that tramples all over other people. Look at verse 9. God is indicting the Chaldeans for getting evil gains. In the eyes of God, people always take preference over things. In verse 10, we see that the Chaldeans have brought shame on their house, on their dynasty, or on their lineage with such practices. They, they achieve their comfort by cutting off many 
peoples. And for that reason, they will be cut off as well. And this should be a word of hope for Israel. The people God will use to judge Israel will also be judged. Remember the promise made to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And Babylon is foolish for even thinking about cursing the people of God. Verse 11, we see that the Chaldeans would face the opposition of those they have wronged. Their reign would not be free of hostility. The Chaldeans were very proud of the cities they had built. Historians tell us that the walls that surrounded the city of Babylon were so broad, four chariots could run side by side on those walls. But, but the Lord tells us in beautiful poetic language here, right? The very structure of that wall, the stones and the beams of their mighty city would cry out injustice. Now the Bible affirms that riches are not bad in and of themselves. Right? It is not money that is the root of all evils. It is the law of money. It is money that is acquired illicitly and used Selfishly. It is when money becomes our goal that money also becomes our idol. Friends, ultimate security does not come from well supplied bank accounts. Ultimate security does not come from a good retirement account. Ultimate security does not come from houses that are paid off. If this world was all that that is, that would be the case. But the way we use our money speaks of how much eternity there is in our hearts. Paul warns the wealthy in the church in a similar way when he writes to his disciple Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, right? Because whether, whether we're rich right now or not, if we're in Christ, we're rich for eternity, right? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes, you see, here's the problem, not, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Friends, do you realize that in God you lack nothing? In God we're rich beyond belief? Verse 18. They are to do good. So, so here's, here's the evidence that a rich person does not love money. They do good. Right? To be rich how? In good works. To be generous 
and ready to share. Thus, right, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So the use of wealth, right, and, and there's a sense that we could make an argument that just by living where we live, we're all wealthy, right? The use, the way we use wealth, wealth will ultimately tell us our eternal direction. So my encourage to all of us here today is use your wealth for the glory of God. Use your wealth for the good of God's people. Use your wealth for the hope of the lost. So how can we do that? If the Lord has blessed you, how can you bless the Lord and bless others? So here are two ways, very simple, practical ways that we can use our wealth to bless others. So our church seeks to serve the needs of our community through our food pantry ministry. If you have the means, would you consider supplying for the needs of our food pantry? If you, if you want to do that, right, the, the things that we have in our food pantry don't appear out of nowhere. If you want to do that, you can speak, speak to Sherry over here, or you can call the church office and we'll be glad to help you. And, and our community will be well served with our resources. Or well, here's another way. Every time you observe the Lord's Supper, we take out a benevolence offering. This offering is used primarily to meet the needs of food and shelter in our congregation. On April 15, Good Friday, we'll observe the Lord's Supper and we'll also take out a benevolence offering. Would you consider contributing to our benevolence funds that day? And that way, we can more and more use the resources that the Lord has given us for good and accumulate for ourselves good rewards in heaven. Friends, there are very practical ways that we can do that. Can I encourage you to prayerfully consider these two ways? There are many other ways. Now, the temptation to rely on money and possessions is not exclusive for the wealthy, is it? It is true that possessions can poison the heart. But the heart can also be poisoned by the hope that is placed on the weekly lottery ticket. The heart can be poisoned by covenant the neighbor's car when we stop at a traffic light. Our hearts can be poisoned by the discontentment we find while scrolling through social media thinking, this person seems to travel every week and I haven't gone on a vacation in years. The, the lack of earthly blessings can also reveal an idol in our hearts. Coveting is possible from wealthy to poor. We all must fight it. Covering is desiring that which God has not given you. 
And if God has not given you what He has not given you, it is because He is wiser than you. So let us learn to be content. Friends, I love the character of Red Teddy in the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Right before he sings his iconic song, If I Were a Rich Man, he says in a short monologue, Dear God, you made many, many people poor. I realize, of course, that it's not shame, it's no shame to be poor. But it's no great honor either. So, what would have been so terrible if I had a small fortune? Tevi verbalizes what we often think, doesn't he? God's got it wrong. He should have given me more confidence. He should have made me more influential, more powerful, more skilled, more attractive. Just two inches taller. You know what I crave, right? <laughs> and yet, God is working out all things for our good. What He's given us, how He's made us, where He's placed us, the relationships that He's put us in. God has not gotten one thing wrong in the entirety of our lives, our joys and sorrows, our successes and failures, the pain and pleasure, this all has come from the hand of the Lord. And He's got it right every time. The Heidelberg Catechism says, all things must work together for my salvation. And what a glorious truth. Friends, God is not ultimately concerned with your comfort today. He is concerned with your salvation tomorrow. God wants to bring you to heaven. And if all your wants were met, you would not be aware of your needs. Heaven is a place for those who are able to say, Give me Jesus. He is enough. So friends, here's the reality. When you have everything this world can offer, whether you have everything this world can offer, or whether you lack all things, your fullness does not depend on your temporary earthly possessions. Because whether the Lord has given you everything that the world can offer, or whether you have no earthly goods, the Lord today is offering you something greater, better than all that the world can offer. The Lord today is offering you Himself. Valuing God over all earthly things is the mark of a true Christian. Now let us consider our last quote. The unjust will be brought to justice. And this is the great cry of humanity, isn't it? Justice 
where there is none. This wall is unique because it really pits the Chaldeans against the Lord. This wall says, Thus are the Chaldeans, but the Lord, not so. In verse 12, the Chaldeans are indicted for building towns unjustly. The Chaldeans conquered lands with great violence and then would use the conquered people's slave labor to build their own towns. But look at verse 13. God does not approve of that. God is righteous and fair. And He does not condone the practice of exchanging labor for fire because one is cold. God cares about the way people are treated. God cares about the way we treat our neighbor. God is not like the Chaldeans. Actually, God opposes the Chaldeans. And this is the hope of Israel. Though the Chaldeans would rule over Israel for a season, they would not rule over them forever. Because ultimately, the Chaldeans are not merely the enemies of Israel. The Chaldeans are the enemies of the God of Israel. Here's what the prophet Jeremiah, a contemporary of Habakkuk, says about God's predisposition towards Babylon. For the Lord is laying Babylon waste and stilling their mighty voice. Their waves roar like many waters. The noise of their voice is raised. For a destroyer has come upon her, upon Babylon. Her warriors are taken. Their bows are broken in peace. And who is this destroyer? Who is the destroyer of this destroying people? For the Lord is a God of recompense. The Lord pays back. He will surely repay. Friends, the greatest hope we have in life is not that we are too strong against our enemies, but our greatest hope in life is that our enemies are God's enemy, enemies as well. We don't face a mighty nation like Babylon, but we do face sin and death. And these are great enemies. But at the end of history, sin and death will be destroyed. And our enemies will be no more. So, what are we called to do now in an age of injustice? We are called to wait. Wait for our deliverer. Wait for our warrior God who will face our enemies and will utterly destroy them. We're called to be acquainted in this age with suffering. We're called to be acquainted in this age with tribulation. We're called to persevere through oppression because our deliverer is coming. But when? Well, look at verse 14. Until the earth is filled with the knowledge of God, the glory of the Lord, as 
the waters cover the seas. This is an eschatological verse. It is a verse about the end times. And there is great confusion about the end times among evangelicals. But here's something that is not confusing. When we get there, at the end times, no one will be confused. Everyone will know the glory of the Lord. And that's when all injustice will be done away with. Well, friends, unfortunately, we live in a different reality today. God is often not honored. His glory is often not worshipped. His person is often ignored. His gospel is often rejected. This is what we live today. Now notice, the verse 14 does not say that one day the earth will be filled with the glory of God. Right? Verse 14 says, the earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. The glory of God encompasses all the earth. The glory of, the, of God is already filling the earth. But we by nature reject it. Although God revealed His glory in all the earth, Psalm 19, 1, men hated the glory of God. Speaking of the nations, the Gentiles, Paul says, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were Friends, that is our nature. We, we don't, by nature, look at the glory of God and say, that's beautiful, that is desirable. By nature, we look at the glory of God and we suppress it. Because we're more interested in our own glory. We're more interested in exalting ourselves. We're more interested in receiving worship ourselves. But one day, that will no longer be the case. This is the picture of the Babylonians. They loved themselves more than God. They loved their possessions. Therefore, they created their own gods. Friend, if you are here today, and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not because... You have not seen His glory. But it is because you have seen His glory and you have suppressed it. You need God to work in your hearts. You need God to give your blind eyes sight and your deaf ears hearing. But the great thing is that God does that. God gives sight where there's none. God gives the ability to hear when there's no ability to hear. 
And he does that by the proclamation of his gospel as he uses that message to impart life in the hearts of many. Friends, when we recognize our weakness, we can look at him who is strong. When we recognize that we have not obeyed the Lord and therefore have rightly earned his eternal judgment, we're able to turn to God and say, Help me in my weakness. Friends, there is one who was not weak, but he humbled himself. And in his weakness, he obeyed the Lord perfectly. And you know what that obedience means to you? It means that you too can be counted as obedient. Before God. Because this one, this one who obeyed perfectly died. He died for sins. He died for the offenses that he did not commit. He took on himself the punishment of the sins that we committed. Our sins. Those are the ones that are nailed to the cross. Not Christ. He's righteous. His obedience is perfect. He did not have to present himself as weak. But he did not count equality with God and to be grasped. So he humbled himself. And friends, the goal of that, right, is so that at the end, every knee should bow. In heaven and earth and under the earth. It is the same goal that Habakkuk is saying here. It is Christ humbles himself so the earth may be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. You will only rightly see the glory of God if you come to Christ. Your sins have made a separation between you and God. And it is Christ who fills this gap. Now friends, at the end the glory of God will be made known. And some will rejoice, and others will dread. Friends, if you trust in Christ, you will rejoice. Because you will look at the glory of God, and you will say, And God is for me, and not against me. So friends, I'm appealing to you today. Would you trust in Christ? Would you come to the right, right side of history? Would you join this chorus of, of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue that will cry out, cry out to the Lord, say, Holy are you, O Lord. Would you join the chorus of the redeemed? Jesus is making that available to you today. Tomorrow is not assured. This afternoon is not assured. So come to Christ today. In humility, in, in weakness, in meekness. And He will save your soul. So my invitation to you today is, come to the right side of history and let the knowledge of the glory of God fill your heart as you will one day fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Would you pray with me?
Father, we recognize that we're not too strong, we're weak. Lord, we recognize that we're not worthy of salvation. Lord, we recognize that our sins are an offense to you. We are not like Christ. We're very often like Babylon. But Lord, you sent Christ to die for those who are like Babylon. So that we would be gradually more like Christ. Father, we pray, reveal your glory to us in such a way that we would not be able to avoid coming to Christ. Enlighten our hearts, Lord. Give us life, spiritual life, where we're dead. Father, we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.